We love the bright lights of December. The night after Thanksgiving, the tour buses and the limousines from the plaza begin turning down our street so that they can get to the really cool blocks in Brookside where the entire block has a theme and lights up their homes together. By Christmas Eve, when we get ready to come to church, we struggle to even back out of our driveway because the buses just keep coming. They are all eager to ooh and awe over the bright, shiny lights of Christmas. And when I see them touring, it reminds me of one of my earliest Christian uh, Christmas memories, one of the earliest memories of my own faith tradition. It happened in my home church in Fort Worth, Texas, where the church would rent two long school buses just before Christmas, and we would load up all the elderly folks and all the kids and everyone in between, and we would drive around Fort Worth to see the Christmas lights. And I remember that the elderly members of the congregation always wanted to go downtown to see how the skylight was lit up, how the skyscrapers were carefully lit to match one another. But the kids, we, we didn't much care. In fact, we weren't even that intrigued by the lights. We were more excited about the bus ride. And what I remember vividly was this one man who was always on the bus. He was that man that everyone at church loved to gather around, especially the kids. We would go to see him each Sunday. But on the bus, he would reach into his pocket and he would pull out his little plastic comb and he would wrap a piece of tissue paper around it and he would play it like it was a harmonica. He would play us a Christmas tune on his comb and we thought it was amazing. Now, looking back, I can see that that gentleman was a wee bit unique, maybe even odd, but I also know that he is one of the people who introduced me to Jesus Christ, to the holy wonder and mystery of God. And I think John the Baptist is a little bit like him. John the Baptist is a little strange, even a bizarre figure in the Bible. But he appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for the sole purpose of introducing us to Jesus. Matthew and Luke both begin their Gospel stories with the baby Jesus in the manger, but then they quickly turn and introduce us to John the Baptist before we learn about the adult Jesus. Before they tell us about the message of Jesus, they tell us about John the Baptist saying, prepare the way of the Lord. But this gospel we read from this morning, the gospel of Mark, which we know is the oldest gospel we have, the oldest story we have about Jesus, leaves out the baby Jesus altogether. No Christmas story is there. No shepherds, no wise ones, no angels. Did Mark not know the story, or did he not care? Mark, Mark simply begins the story of good news with this bizarre figure named John the Baptist. Somehow, the Gospel writers believe that before we can hear the good news of Jesus, we need to hear the words of John the Baptist. Now, sometimes I just want to skip over the words of John the Baptist because honestly, 
they don't feel all that Christmassy. In this season of rejoicing, John calls us to repent. John demands that we take a hard look at our own lives, that we reorient our lives towards God. The unconventional John the Baptist, dressed in camel hair, meanders out to the wilderness on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and he invites the people to reflect on the wilderness of their own souls. John the Baptist is what I think of as the warm-up band for the coming main attraction of Jesus, the Messiah. But sometimes you just don't really want to hear the warm-up band. You just want to come in in time to listen to the main attraction. You and I live in a world that is caught up in winning and creating success stories. We love the bright lights of fame and fortune. We love joyful celebrations. We're ready for that. We will work hard to do whatever it takes to achieve the radiant life, the radiant light. An American teenager named Taylor Finney illustrates for me this desire we have to achieve greatness. Taylor Finney attended the world-famous bike race, the Tour de France, when he was only 14 years old. He was there with his parents. His dad was a famous cyclist, the first American to win a road stage at the Tour de France. And his mom had competed and won medals in two different events at the Olympics. Taylor was destined for greatness. These two athletic, famous parents. And when he got to the Tour de France at age 14, he decided to abandon his passion for soccer and dedicate his life to becoming a world-famous cyclist. He competed in several different Olympic Games, and in 2014, he was very close to competing in the Tour de France when he was riding his bicycle 60 miles an hour and hit a guardrail and broke his leg in multiple places. The zigzags of those scars reminded Taylor every time he looked down at his leg of what the doctor had told him. You will probably never run again. During his long recuperation, he had so much time to ponder life. For nine months, he couldn't walk without crutches. He painted, he studied aviation, he thought about what life was about. And he realized that cycling was a small bubble in life and that there was so much more to life than just cycling. He endured five different operations, and at the end, he realized he did not have to be a cyclist. He did not have to win. He told the columnist, Juliet McCour, obsessive Taylor died when I broke my leg. Life would be okay if I never raced a bicycle again. And last summer, Taylor Finney competed in the Tour de France, but he came to the race as a new person, having reflected all those months on his brokenness, his own imperfections, his own fragile human nature. He came to the Tour de France this time as a transformed human being. 
Who among us has not known that reluctance to face the difficult chapters of our lives? We'd rather sweep our troubles under the rug and pretend that life is grand. Life is next to perfect. There are wounds and fractures in our lives that we keep hidden our entire lives. We fancy our lives, some days, like those beautiful plaza lights, shimmering. But then there are those moments of sitting in the wilderness with John the Baptist when we feel called to turn, to change, to repent. We find ourselves in the ICU where the lights are dim and the only light that is red and green is coming from a heart monitor that is obnoxiously blinking. Or we walk down the corridor in the courtroom where the fluorescent lights are just too much and we wonder how we got to this place. Or we wake up in the middle of the night where the night light flickers and we wonder how our hearts got to this point. Recently, a college senior from an elite private school told me about what happened with his roommate, who's a junior. He walked in unannounced, accidentally, on the junior roommate, just as the roommate was about to inhale prescription painkillers. Both boys were startled to see one another. Rather than criticizing his roommate for this terrible life choice, the senior just sat down on the bed there and said, what's going on? The junior began to open up. He shared about the pain of his parents' divorce, about his recent girlfriend troubles. He shared about his struggle to find a major that really mattered to him. The senior was silent. He simply listened. And finally, he stood up and he said, you know, I know where you are. I've been there myself. I'm gonna walk out of this room now, and I don't know what you're gonna do about those drugs. I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but I know for sure that those drugs will not alleviate the pain you just told me about. He walked out and he shut the door. And a few days later, the roommate came to him and said, thank you. Thank you for caring enough to listen and to just let me talk. John the Baptist announced the good news of Jesus, but he said this good news will only sound like good news if we are ready to see our lives from a new angle, to even look at the bad news of our lives. Frederick Beekner says that to repent is to simply come to your senses. It's not so much, he says, looking back and going, oh, I'm so sorry. It's looking forward and going, wow. To be willing to let our own minds and hearts be changed, to have the courage to walk in a new direction. If we don't own where we are now, we won't even know that we need a savior to come this season and redeem us. My husband, some of you know, grew up in a traditional Baptist family. My in-laws are some of the finest people in the world. I adore them. 
But I was surprised when I first got to know them that though they study scripture religiously and read most scriptures more literally than I do, that there are some verses in the Bible that they too think need a little bit of interpretation. For example, when they read the verse that says Jesus drank wine, they know that that really means grape juice. Wine, you know, is never to be touched by a faithful Christian, at least in their ideology of the Christian faith. After my husband Dave grew up and went to seminary and studied the scriptures, he decided that having an occasional beer at the ball game or drinking an occasional glass of wine with dinner would not really disappoint Jesus, but he knew that it would still disappoint his mom. And so, on the advice of his father, Dave elected to adopt the policy of hiding the alcohol when mom and dad made their annual visit. When Dave was about 40 years old, he and his kids were scurrying around the house, tidying up for mom and dad's annual visit. Dave walked into the kitchen, and there was his nine-year-old son, Kyle, on his knees in front of the refrigerator, rearranging the bottom shelf. Kyle, what are you doing down there? Dad, I'm hiding the wine so Grandma and Grandpa won't see it. Suddenly, Dave realized that in his attempt to please his parents, he was teaching his nine-year-old to lie, to be inauthentic, to hide one's true self in front of one's most beloved people. Leave the wine out, Dave said, for he now saw the issue of his own life in a different light, and he was able to change, and they all lived through it. Christmas is three weeks away. Advent begins today. This is the season for seeing ourselves in a different light, for preparing ourselves to let the light of the world illumine the secret corners of our own souls. John the Baptist knew that in order to prepare for the inbreaking presence of God to enter into us, we would first need to utter, at least silently, where it is that we long for the Holy Presence. Today is the first day of the Christian year we welcome new members to go on this journey of faith with us. And I wish I could tell all of you, from Milburn, who's been here his whole life, to the newest member who will join today, that this journey is one of pure joy and easy light. But the journey of faith requires us also to look at where we are broken. John lights the candle where we can see and claim the truth of who we really are. The famous preacher Fred Craddock reminds us that standing at the altar of God, we find a light like none other in all the world. A few weeks ago, I listened to a podcast from the Moth Radio Hour. There was this delightful chaplain she was a game warden in Maine. She served the, the game warden service 
When they experienced some kind of tragedy, she trained the game wardens about what to do if there was an outdoor catastrophe. Sometimes after someone fell mountain climbing or some terrible car accident happened, the question would arise, what if the loved ones want to see the body of the deceased? She had lost her own husband in a car accident, and so she adopted the policy of if the one who is standing before you wants to see the remains of their loved one, it's okay. Let them. That was her policy. And then she met Nina. Nina is only five years old. Nina is hanging on the monkey bars in her backyard with her pigtails dragging the ground. Nina's mom tells the chaplain that Nina wants to see Andy, her cousin, but Andy is dead. Andy died instantly with no pain when an ATV fell on him. Nina's parents want to protect her. They don't want her to face this horrific moment to see the body. The chaplain also doesn't know what is the right thing. What is right for a five-year-old? They go to Nina and they explain to Nina that Andy cannot talk. He cannot get up. Nina is five, but she's fine. It's okay. I, I want to see Andy. Her mother drives her to the funeral parlor where Andy's body lies in a cold room on a dais. It is draped in a quilt that his mother made for him when he was a newborn. Nina bolts right past the guy at the front door of the funeral parlor. She goes straight into the room, the rest of the family trailing. She walks right up to Andy, and she lays her head upon his chest, and she talks with him. About 10 minutes pass. Nina, are you ready to go? No. And then Nina begins to sing Andy a song. She reaches into her little backpack and she pulls out a Fisher Price plastic telescope. She places it in Andy's hand so that Andy can see anyone he loves from heaven. And then she walks around the dais and she tucks the little quilt around the edges of her cousin's body. I love you, Andy Dandy. Goodbye. We can choose the bright lights of Christmas or we can light one candle. <laughs>